In Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 8, Paul writes this. And, and this is what I would like to be our um, launching off point in the Scriptures to speak of the atonement. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Essentially, all the points of the atonement that that I would like for us to walk through are referenced in that section of Scripture. I mean, we're going to get into the love of God, Christ dying for us, being justified by the blood of Jesus, being reconciled to God. And we're going to walk through and see first the necessity of the atonement, then the accomplishment of the atonement, what was achieved, and then the extent of the atonement. Okay, So that's how we're going to move through this. So that need for the atonement. In Genesis chapter 3, there is the fall. Sin enters into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. And and as uh, I believe it was Spurgeon said, that didn't just break our pinky toe, that broke the whole man. Like sin sin and the curse of sin ravages humanity. Okay? So we start with sin. And really, this is a key concept in understanding the atonement. Because if we do not take sin seriously, then we will not take mercy seriously. Right? You see, if sin is just mistakes that we sometimes make and, and we just have to apologize to some people for them, and, and, that's, and maybe, some, maybe some consequences that fall out from that, but, but if we have a very low view, if we, if we have a, a simplified view of sin, it will be much harder for us to see the atonement, the blood of Jesus, properly. So, taking seriously sin. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is another letter by Paul. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we learn that sin, sin has made man evil. Innocence has been lost. I was recently watching, um, it was actually, uh, Bill O'Reilly was interviewing uh, uh, Billy Graham's son. I'm sorry, what's, uh, Franklin. You know, you know your, uh, your, 
your Graham lineage quite well. Uh, so Billy Graham begat Franklin Graham. And Franklin was sitting there with, with Bill, and they were having a nice back and forth. They were actually talking about uh, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Um, so these two guys were talking about that um, interesting scenario. But as they were going back and forth, Bill Riley said, he, he kept bringing up like innocent people that died who had not heard the gospel. You see, if we, if we have a framework where there are innocent people, then we're going we're gonna to start off at a different point and end up in different places than really where the scriptures permit us to go. You see, we have to begin that, that because of the curse of sin, because sin entering into all of humanity, then there aren't innocent people. We don't necessarily like that. Um, we like that for some people. Like, we like to, you know, there's not a chance, okay, that person's evil, that person's wicked. But, you know, we, we have to go back to that for, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We, ha- we have to go back not to what feels right or feels good or, or makes us um, uh, satisfied in our emotions, but we, we have to go back to what God's Word says. And God's Word says that, that sin utterly wrecked humanity. Okay? And as Paul says here, dead in our trespasses and our sins. Not wounded, not maimed, but dead in our sin and our trespasses. And he includes us all. When he talks about those that walked according to the passions of the flesh and so on, he, he includes everyone. And once we, we all once walked. We also see that man is a slave to sin. We see that in, um, in Romans chapter 6. Um, that, that man is enslaved to sin. Sin is his master. And that we are children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. So then that brings us, well, what is this necessity of the atonement? Well, first, that we are sinful. And that, that, that relationship with God has been broken and needs to be reconciled. That we need to be ransomed. That we need to be redeemed from sin. But there is that question of necessity. Did God have to do this? Did God have to? Is there, is there a necessity of the atonement in that God had to save anyone? That God had to reconcile man, any man to himself? Anyone to himself? And really, this is, this is where uh, this term comes out. Uh, consequent, absolute necessity. Consequent, absolute necessity. That because God so desires that anyone would be saved, anyone would be reconciled, redeemed, ransomed, that now because He so wills that to be, now there is the necessity of the atonement. Now there has to be blood to cover the sins of man and woman. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says this about the bloodshed. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
without the shedding of blood, there cannot be a forgiveness of sins. And this image is conveyed throughout the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. You know, the the blood of bulls and goats, which in Hebrews later, um, it is emphasized that that could never really do away with our sin. It could cover it for a time, but it could never do away with it. It could not fully redeem. It could not fully ransom. It could not properly atone. In John chapter 3, verse 14, it says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. There is a must, there is a necessity that, that something greater than bulls and goats, these animal sacrifices, more than that must occur. And because God has so willed this to be, that there would be reconciliation, ransom, redemption, something greater than these animals must be sacrificed. Because... Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the desire of the Lord to to put this in motion. John Murray says these words, The alternative to the giving of God's only begotten Son and being lifted up on the accursed tree is the eternal perdition of the lost. The eternal damnation of the lost. That's the only other option. If it's not the only begotten Son, if it is not God Himself crucified, God incarnate sacrificed, the only other direction it goes is perdition. So, what is the basis for the atonement? What is the basis for this desire, this this agreement even beginning and I would offer this. We, if we tr- trace back all the way through why this agreement even comes about, the genesis of the atonement rests in this. God's love for sinners. And beyond that, we cannot go. We, we, can't, we can't go any further into the will and mind of the sovereign triune God for some reason that I cannot fathom. God loves sinners. And if you try and make any argument about the atonement, if you try and magnify any other facet, which there are many other facets and many other variables, very important variables, but if you make any other thing more important than that, I think that we start to speak ignorantly and at worst arrogantly. That in that triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, He has loved Broken, dirty, angry, wrathful sinners. And that is the most amazing part 
of the atonement. That genesis. And then everything that flows out of it, that's ineffable. That is unspeakable. That God would choose to reconcile an uncountable multitude. And that those who have heard the Gospel and trusted in Christ partake of that. Freely. Buy food that have no money. Drink from a well that will not run dry. And that you have any part of that. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room that, that speaking about the atonement would be some, some hill that you could get up and, and just fight people on. That's just, the, the arrogance and the ignorance in that and, and the, the marriage of the two is just disgusting. There's no room for that. Bit of a tangent. All right. So, out of God's love, He has elected. All right. First off, He's elected that He would pursue relationship with sinful man and woman. That He would restore that relationship. Okay, so he, he elects, he calls out, he predestines. And that's the other thing. This does not happen after the fall. This happened before. See? See that little Tarantino style there? Like, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta move that one back. That happened before the foundation of the earth. Enjoy your minds being blown for a second. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. This is Paul writing here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And catch this. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In love, He predestined us. It, it, it is out of that indescribable, just how, how do we even get to understand that kind of love that would predestine a countless, countless multitude to be ransomed? Moving on. we got a lot to cover here. Predestined in love. Other places, uh, John 1, uh, verse 9. Uh, verse 13, uh, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans 8.29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That out of God's love, He predestined, He called forth This love of God. John Murray spoke of it in his book, Accomplished and Applied. Uh, the love of God from which the atonement springs is not a distinctionless love. It is a love that elects and predestines 
God was pleased to set His love upon a countless multitude. And it is the determinate purpose of this love that the atonement secures. The reason, the reason of this election resides wholly in Himself and proceeds from determinations that are peculiar just as I am that I am. The atonement does not win or constrain the love of God. The love of God constrains the atonement as a means of accomplishing love's determinate purpose. That is God's love on the move. God's love at work accomplishing what God has decreed. This is His sovereign love. The cause and source of the atonement. Romans 9.14 Romans 9.14 What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we need ransom. But who pays the ransom? We need redemption, but who pays the redemption? You see, often like the, even just the, um, the image of ransom, uh, we, can, we can think about um, a kidnapping of sorts, you know? Like Mel Gibson, give me back my son. You know, like those kind of... Okay. Uh, but, but this is a different kind of ransom. Um, and, and there are a number of different um, ways in which we can speak about what was accomplished on the cross. And, and, and we're going to hit on a couple and, and uh, we'll hit on one that's foundational really for, for all of them. Um, but it is important to, to define our terms. Um, so, so we have this need for ransom, but in, in Psalm 49, um, uh, we, we get this, that, that no man can ransom himself. No, no one can pay the cost of ransoming oneself. Now there was, um, in Exodus uh, 21, uh, there's this law about if you have an ox and it gores someone, okay? So you have an ox, it gores somebody, they kill the ox, all right. If it if it's been known to gore, all right. If it's been known to gore, if it gores someone and, and it kills them, they will kill the ox, and then they'll kill you. All right. So so there's the rule. Except the person. Let's say that it was uh, you had an ox. It killed uh, this this wife, and the husband is living. He can issue a ransom on your head. All right, but you pay it. You pay to, to, to spare your life. All right, he doesn't pay it. He, he, he just lost his wife, and, and you're the one with the ox. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. All right, so he, he can issue that ransom, though. And then you pay that debt, and you get to live. See, it's not the, the kidnapping situation where uh, the bad guy takes you, you, uh, you know, God pays the debt to the bad man, and you, the innocent person, you get to come home. 
See, it, it, it's more like this, this story of the, the goring ox, um, where you, you, it is set on you to, to pay this debt because you are liable, you are guilty for this death. But what if the husband issues the ransom and pays the debt? You see, when, when this language is, is being used in this context, that's the image that these people are getting. You, you mean a guilty person is let off and the ransom is paid by the person who was offended? That, that's the image that, that Jesus is bringing about that says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom for many. See, God makes this way to accomplish. And, and there are, like I said, a number of different ways that, um, and descriptions that, that the atonement is talked about in the New Testament. What I would say um, is, is the most uh, emphasized understanding of the atonement, the death of Christ, is, is, is this. It's penal substitution. Penalty sub- substitution. That, that someone took the penalty as a substitute. And this one is really kind of the, uh, the, the root in which all these other images kind of grow out of it, or, or at least are influenced by. That there is a penalty, God's wrath, and a penalty due, and there is a substitute. Someone else pays that debt. Someone else takes on that penalty of wrath. Now, now that's something that uh, is contested. Uh, there are Christians that really don't like the sound of that. Uh, the, one, of the, one of the images that's used there is that it's cosmic child abuse. You know, that, that the Heavenly Father looks at His Son, who is innocent and blameless, and executes wrath against His Son. They say, how could that be a loving God? But we see in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and this is, this is foundational to understanding the atonement. Paul writes these words, For our sake, He, God, made Him Jesus. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that substitution? Do you see that exchange that happens there? Two things. One, He took our sin and penalty that was due us. But also, He gave us His righteousness and we received the reward of His obedience. You see, because it's not just His death and resurrection. It's also His life. His incarnation is a, is a keystone to this atonement. Another word is propitiation. That means appeasement of God's wrath. That's satisfaction of God's holy anger. That's how He could be that substitute is that He would appease God's wrath. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, whom, uh, speaking of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. That's that old sacrificial system 
of bulls and goats. And the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and behind that veil, in that, in that secret place, in that point of divine mystery, was covering over sins until there would be a sacrifice, a substitute, a propitiation that His blood and the value, the merit of His blood would cover over sin and wash it away. That that would appease God's wrath. And in that, verse uh, 25 in, in chapter 3 of Romans, that this would display God's righteousness. Not His lack of love or injustice that He would execute this upon His innocent Son, but that that would be a display of His righteousness. That it would display His glorious nature, His mercy. So the wrath that was due us is appeased by the substitute of Christ. And then the image of redemption. In Romans 6, that we would have that master sin and that we would be redeemed from our old master, our former master's sin, under whom we worked unrighteousness. We worked hard at unrighteousness. In fact, so much so that Paul says that we were earning a paycheck for our unrighteousness, and the wages, our paycheck for our unrighteousness, was death. But the free gift, the gift that's in Christ, is forgiveness and eternal life. The work that we did not do, the reward that we did not earn, the paycheck we did not deserve, this divine welfare that He would give to us what we do not deserve by any stretch of the imagination. And if you think that you are doing enough things right now to somehow merit it, you know, back payments, like He... He paid the down payment and you've got the mortgage going. You're running on a treadmill, okay? You're not going anywhere. You're putting a lot of energy out there and you think that you're getting far and you've gotten nowhere. And then reconciliation. Uh, one more statement about uh, redemption. The, the image that we have for that, you know, Israel redeemed out of Egypt. You know, Exodus 15 that God would send this mediator to bring them out of that captivity, out of, that, um, out of being slaves in Egypt. Um, that, that's the same thing that's being brought about in the, in the New Testament uh, language here. That we have been redeemed out of bondage. And then reconciliation. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, kind of part B. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That relationship has been restored that that union with God has been brought about through the blood of Christ, and that we have been reconciled. This is His whole life again. This is the incarnation. This is 
His death and resurrection and His ascension. That is the atoning work of Christ. That is what He has accomplished. And only Christ could accomplish that. Hear these words from John Murray. Only such a person offering such a sacrifice could have dealt with sin so as to remove it and could have made such purification as would secure for the many sons to be brought to glory access into the very holiest of divine presence. The blood of Jesus is the blood that has the requisite efficacy and virtue only by reason of the fact that He who is the Son, the radiance of the Father's glory and the expressed image of His substance became Himself also partaker of flesh and blood and thus was able by one sacrifice to perfect all those who are sanctified. Only Christ, only in this sacrifice, only in this manner, only by the will of God, only by His divine good pleasure, only by His love for sinners is the atonement made possible. All right. There are many other ways uh, that the atonement is talked about in the New Testament. Um, you know, the, the victory that Christ gives us, um, the, uh, th- that it was voluntary. There's so many different things, and, and we, could, we could talk about those, but we're going we're gonna to move on now and talk about the extent of the atonement, uh, and then we'll take a break, okay? The extent of the atonement. Uh, going off of some of those last statements there, um, the atonement does not win God's love. It does not constrain it. It does not win it. It does not rule over it. It is the provision of it. You see that? The atonement didn't win God's love. It didn't achieve God's love. It's the provision of God's love. So, uh, we're going to look at three different views on the extent of the atonement. Okay? And uh, they're, they're... Plenty of them out there, but these are three of the most popular, and I think three that we might have some more discussion about. So, um, the first one unlimited universal redemption. Unlimited universal redemption. It is the belief that God's intent was for Christ to die for all so that all will be saved. Shorthand universalism. Uh, final restoration of all things to God. This rejects the idea uh, of an everlasting hell and separation from God. It is that Christ on the cross secured the salvation for everyone, whether they confess it or not, whether they reject it or accept it, that that it is for all. Um, This is the perspective that I, I won't say that he believes because he hasn't said that, um, although he's been asked about a million times. But in the Rob Bell book, uh, he favors introducing this idea. Okay, that, that's, I think that's as far as I can safely say. He favors introducing, emphasizing this idea of an uh, unlimited 
universal redemption. Um, also, uh, you might have read, I don't, I don't know what kind of newspaper would have this information, but uh, Mercer, uh, the, the former president of Mercer University, he, uh, in an interview this week, affirmed this position. Uh, he's a graduate of Samford. He has a, an honorary degree from Samford, um, and that, that is his position, and that's what he has, has affirmed. Um, unlimited universal redemption. The next one, limited universal redemption. So we had unlimited universal redemption and now limited universal redemption. The atonement is universal in design, but limited in its accomplishment. Okay? Universal in design, but limited in its accomplishment. Meaning the, the Trinity purpose, the salvation for all, which is the universal part, intended uni- salvation for all through Christ's atoning death, but not all are saved in the end. The cross is not directly a satisfaction for sin. It only becomes so when a sinner believes for salvation. This is the traditional Arminian view, okay? That the cross is not directly a satisfaction for sin, but it becomes so when a sinner believes in Christ for salvation. That's a, that's a conditional clause there. Uh, Raymond Blackateer, a Canadian pastor and theologian, uh, he kind of summarized it like this. And, and a lot of this breakdown is from uh, um, uh, Beek's Living for God's Glory, just by the way. All right. Um, for Arminius, the work of Christ on the cross does not effect salvation. You know, propitiation, satisfaction, or redemption. All right? For any person or group. Instead, it makes salvation possible. It, it, it lays the opportunity for salvation. The condition uh, that God prescribes is faith. And it is up to the individual sinner to use the, uh, there's general grace out there um, provided by God to take this step of faith if they believe. The, The determinative factor in salvation is the free choice of humanity. Salvation depends on the human acceptance of it. Citing uh, verses such as 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 2, He is the pro- propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay? So they take that whole world to mean the offer is out there for the whole world, the, the cross is sufficient to save everyone, it's universal in its extent. Um, but also believing that it's limited because you have to believe it to obtain it. Okay, we good? All right. Uh, next, limited atonement or particular atonement. There's so many different names for this stuff, but, uh, but limited or particular atonement. The belief that satisfaction rendered by Christ on the cross was of infinite value and worth by virtue of Christ's incarnation, but its intended object was not sinners in general or every individual, but rather those whom God had elected before the foundations of the earth. The Father sent His Son to the cross to pay the sins for the elect. 
so that Christ died savingly, effectively, and personally for all of those who are God's chosen people. Though Christ's blood is, this is the kind of cliche statement here, uh, though Christ's blood is sufficient for all, it is efficient only for the elect. It accomplishes its purpose. Whomever Christ died to save will be saved. Not one who belongs to Christ will be lost. So, so it's not the opportunity, it's not that the atonement offers the opportunity, it secures salvation for the elect. Okay, so a few summary statements here and then we'll break for a bit. Um, it is important to keep in mind that we are not saved by doctrine. We're saved by Jesus. You see, we're, we're, not, we're not saved by f- the, the belief in faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. Okay? It's the blood of Christ alone. And it's what He has done. And so, I'm going to guess that there are probably some different views and opinions on these things in here. And I think that that's okay. Now, I don't think that it's always okay. Meaning, I don't think that we have been redeemed to never think about these things. That's why I said that I had that agenda out out of the gate. But we have to be careful and cautious because we are treading on a holy mystery. And so we have to um, walk humbly, submitting to God's Spirit and His Word. And and to be like the Bereans, to, to search God's Word, to listen to His Spirit, to see if these things are true. But not merely true for us, but true. So I'd like to, to go back and, and read just a, a few verses here. Um, actually, uh, for time, I'm just going to read one. Um, I might read one uh, later, depending on length of questions and answer time. But l- let me just read this to you, uh, and then I'll pray, and then you can get drinks and all that stuff. Okay. From Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call His name Jesus. For He will save His people from their sins. Let's pray. Uh, God, um, give us humility to even think of these things. Give us a hunger to know You and not just about You. And Lord, through Your Spirit, give us wisdom and insight that that we might know You and love You and adore You. 
but not merely be those that would adore you, but those that would follow you, trust you, and obey you. Lord, I pray over the time of Q&A that you would be glorified and that we would not. We pray these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Um, Okay, so uh, I felt it um, it, it would probably be helpful and also uh, it would, I, I think that it would, have, it would be disingenuous if I did not say um, that in my, in, in my belief um, I agree with the particular or the limited atonement uh, view of the atonement. Um, I believe that, that God has uh, elected and uh, predestined those for salvation through the work of Christ, um, and that the work of Christ did not simply uh, create an opportunity, but secured that, and secured that meaning um, that in the work of Christ that that um, the children of God, the the people of God, have been redeemed and ransomed and reconciled through the blood of Jesus, and that the wrath due me um, was placed on Christ and that Christ has, has given to the people of God His righteousness. Um, and so that's, that's a perspective that, that I come from. Um, that has not always been the case. It's not, not what I was raised in. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, there's that. Because I, I think that um, targets should, should uh, stand up and be substantial. Uh, and so there, there that is. Um, okay, so we're going to open it up. And uh, first question. Yes. Okay, I'll try and summarize it for other people and the recording. Um, the question of uh, if if you agree with and, and uh, view the atonement through the lens of, of limited particular atonement, how would you then describe when you became a Christian, when you came to faith? Um, and that's where I would, I would offer this, and then Joel can hop in if you'd like. Um, the call, the, uh, the gospel call, is the same in that it is a call to faith. It's a call to believe um, because it is through faith. Now, what the limited view is going to say is that um, that faith is a gift from God that was secured and purchased on the cross. So from the cross, that, that faith is, is given to the, the believer. And in that, that we would, we would look and see because of regeneration, like when we confessed Christ, when we confessed that, that, um, that we uh, cannot save ourselves, um, that we are sinful, that we are in desperate need of redemption and ransoming and reconciliation with God, and that we trust Christ for that, and that we believe on Him. Um, because anyone who does that, anyone who believes on the name of Christ is saved, is, um, is redeemed, is ransomed. And so that call goes out, um, whosoever believeth. And, uh, and so when, when that you, I think that we can identify that time when we 
when we confess that. Now, when was that secured? On Calvary. And when was that predetermined? Before the foundations of the earth. Um, But when did you declare salvation in Christ alone whenever you did. Yes? Um, absolutely. Yeah, because... I'm, I'm sorry? Yeah. Um, first off, because God calls us to you know, he invites us to join in that in prayer, um, and that we uh, that we would be burdened for people, um, as as Paul talks about the I mean the the same anxiety that he talks about uh, in Philippians about you know don't be anxious for anything. He later says, "I'm anxious over the church." I mean, he is heavily burdened. Um, and I think that we are called to emulate that as well. Um, to be, but now as far as what, to 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 ride sidecar to man much smarter than myself, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, it changes me um, first and foremost. Like my like that I that I view God as the one that I must appeal to because I'm not going to just say, you know, Daniel, be smarter. See this more clearly. Be more logical. I'm going to say God change His heart. Open His eyes. Take the veil from His eyes that He would see your gospel fully and that you would transform Him. Joe. Um, I, I would say it, it's hard for me to understand when somebody does not believe that God is sovereign over someone's hearts. To me, the question is, why would you pray to that God if God can't change the person's heart? Because even my most Arminian friends pray, I hate to use Arminian Calvinists, but they pray like they're Calvinist in the sense of I've never known anybody to pray that God would grant free will to this person. God, they're not choosing you. Honor that. Instead, you pray, God, they're not choosing you. Change their heart. Break down those walls of resistance. And, and, and you know, when you're praying that, you're praying God sovereignly enter their life and just regenerate them. And, and so I, I do think the, the way we pray is we, we pray believing the sovereignty of God in that. Um, and do, do we change God's will? I don't think so. You know, 1 Samuel 15, God's not like man that he should change his mind. And so he doesn't hear our argument or whatever and change. He, he aligns us to his will is how I would see doing that. David. Created 
predestined or elected, so therefore no one was created in order to not enjoy salvation. In limited atonement, does that mean really that the inevitable conclusion is that God's love is limited and that his mercy is limited? Grace, all of that is actually Okay, so the question is, is, is God's love, grace, mercy limited when there would be someone that is not elect? Okay. First, um, we, we don't get out of that question through the unlimited uh, or um, general atonement. Because there are still those that are not redeemed. And so now we're going to say, well, that's, that's, they're held accountable then to their unbelief. They're, it's their unbelief, and so that's their, their rejection of Christ. But we're still going to make it limited. See, the limited nature is that God's love is still, are, are, we, are we going to say that God's love is limited and that anyone would perish to hell? And the only way out of that would then be to go to the universal unlimited atonement where it's everybody free for all. And, and the problem with that is that no scripture lets us go there. And then as we get to that, that question of, you know, in Romans 9 where, um, you know, is God, is God unjust? Is, it, what, what, is His love limited uh, that anyone would be uh, cast out, and he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And beyond that, like, we just, we, we can't go um, into that. And, and I, I just, I wouldn't go into saying that it's a limit of his love. It's an expression of his love that anyone would be saved. And, and we can't work simply out of that that notion, that personal notion that it's true, and, and I, I Definitely sympathize with that, but but we we I don't think that we can extrapolate a, a a theology from that emotion without just submitting to God's word, where He says that He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and be consistent with that. Um, but but I, I think it is important just to reemphasize that there is a a limiting quality to the. Uh, limited universalist, the Arminian view, there's still a limiting quality because it's limiting, uh, it's not going to limit the extent, but it's going to limit the efficacy, you know, the effective quality of God's work because then it's saying, well, you intended on everyone to be saved, but you didn't follow through on that. You, you didn't accomplish that um, because they have, re- they have rejected you. But Joel or... I would say the only other way to, to kind of sidestep that the issue of the extent of God's love is if you wanted to say, well, then God could not have known. You, you, you would have to limit his foreknowledge because whether God created a person, you know, going to hell or created a person giving them absolute free choice but knowing he was going to hell, there's really not a difference. And... and there. And so you, you would have to put, okay, I'd have to limit, we can't have a God who foreknows anything. That would be the only way that I could, if I'm going to limit that love, if, you know, that's the only way he could really love everybody is if he doesn't know. 
who's going to choose and who's not going to choose. And then he could create people. But then we don't have an omnipotent God or, or a God who knows the future. Thomas? The role of the Lord's Supper and Atonement. Um, what we walked through at the start, the, um, the necessity of the atonement and uh, the accomplishment of the atonement, so many things compete for us to, to believe those things, to believe our sinfulness, our, our need for salvation, and the work of Christ, um, what, he, what he has accomplished through the cross. And I believe that the, the Lord's Supper is the opportunity for the church to be habitually reminded of the work of Christ on the cross and to enter into um, a, a way in which the Spirit ministers to us in, 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 a, in a mysterious way, that, that the Spirit ministers to us in proclaiming the truth of the gospel, reminding us of the gospel. Because I, I don't care if your church does it, you know, once a year or every week or twice a week. Um, you will sin and, and, and somehow in your lifestyle reject the truth of the gospel and just the way that you live. Like you will disobey in some manner. I will between the times that I have taken it. And I need to be reminded of the, the ransoming, redeeming, reconciling work of Christ. And, and I believe that the Lord's, the Lord's Supper offers that to us, both in a remembering, but also in a, in a mysterious way in which the, the Lord ministers to our hearts and minds. You're going to answer it for me? Okay. Uh, the question. Um, the question was, uh, in short, just how, how does this actually and, and realistically impact the life of a believer day to day, and in particular, me? Um, and you can answer this for yourself for me as much as you'd like. No. Um, it's, it's appropriately humiliating that the divine and human Son of God would take my filthiness upon Himself and then offer me His perfect righteousness. And that in that, while I was an enemy of God, that He died for me. Um, it's funny, I was thinking earlier today um, that that... that while you were an enemy of God, Christ died for you. That, that went out to ears. Like if you were 30 years old in, in the Roman culture, uh, when, or in Rome when that letter came to you, you were 10 years old when Christ died. And so you're thinking, I was a, 
an enemy. I was 10 years, what did I do when I was 10 years old? Or maybe if you were a little bit older, you were like, I was 17, maybe I was starting to be an enemy of God. I mean, these weren't people, uh, they weren't all Jews. There were a lot of Gentiles as well in in the Roman church. And, um, And to know that, yeah, you were an enemy. And to take that to me, like, I was a long time from being born, and I was an enemy. And that Christ's work secured that. That, that ransoming. And that I live today ransomed. And, it, and it, it turns obedience from an obligation to an expression of devotion to God. It, it turns that upside down. And, and what all other religions and unfortunately many Christian settings uh, emphasize to people in obedience and uh, morality and ethical living um, just rejects that celebration of being able to look at the righteousness of Christ and and Christ alone. And that from Him, my greatest needs have been met. My deepest need of reconciliation with God has been met. And there are lots of needs and problems and things that I will meet tomorrow because there are lots of problems and things that I met today. But my deepest need, my greatest need, has been met in Christ. And then that transforms the way that I share that good news because it is good news with others. It's my best bet. Here we go. Um, for, for me, like, like Jeff said, it's laying the groundwork for worship, which is humility. And... Um, I, I would say, I mean, I remember when I really wrestled with this and came to believe this um, as a freshman in college, and it, it had what I would call a knee-buckling effect to me. Just nothing else had brought me to the knee, my knees like that in worship, um, because I truly realized what Christ had accomplished on the cross, and that I, I did nothing. Even my own faith, which I at one time boasted in, how I believe this over others is like, no, that, that was purchased for you on the cross as well. Um, and I think that's the place for it when you, when you look through um, the book of Romans. Um, it, it puts atonement and, and the sovereignty of God, or what I would, um, the sovereignty, uh, you know, when you get to Romans 9, I guess, in predestination there, if you look where that's at, there's the gospel first, you know, that everybody's a sinner, you know, there's the general knowledge of God, then everybody's sinned, and then um, what Christ is achieving on the cross, then how even though we're saved, we still struggle with sin, Um, and then he hits Romans 9 and election and predestination and how this atonement was purchased for us on the cross even before the foundations of the world, and that's that last piece before you get to Romans 12, which is worship. Um, And I think Calvinist um, a lot of times get really excited and uh, they, they move it to the very front. They want to put predestination in Romans 1 um, when it's in Romans 9. And I think right before worship, it really sets the heart for worship. Um, and I think another practical thing, I'm, I'm, this is going to be a shameless teaser, but this Sunday as we go through... <laughs> Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, um, something I, I never even noticed I was studying it this morning. Every time Peter speaks, in, in each of the first four chapters in Acts, he talks about 
God being sovereign over everything, all the evil that's happening. And he hits it and he hits it and hits it and he nails it in four. When he talks about, you know, Pilate and Herod did what you predestined beforehand to happen. And when he's presenting the gospel, he's like, God is in complete and absolute total control of all of this. So teaser, Acts 4, this Sunday, 5 o'clock, Redeemer Community Church. Yes. I'm really bad at pretending. What does a universalist do with, with John 6? question is, uh, in John 6, when Jesus says, um, uh, all that the Father has given me shall come to me, and I will not cast out. And how can you answer, how can you look at that from a universalist perspective? Well, the answer is, it's not exclusive. And so you, you can say, yes, it's true that all that he gives will come to me, but others might come as well. So you can answer that in that, okay, yes, that, that's true, but he's not excluding saying the others won't. And so that is how a universalist would, would answer that. It's a bad answer, but it's, it's how they would answer it. Yeah, so the question, um, is there, 
are, are there particular things about the atonement that, or, or the doctrine of atonement that you have to believe to be a believer or a follower of Christ? Is that a yeah. decent? Okay. Uh, yes, I believe that there are components, um, primarily because the, the doctrine of atonement is testifying to the gospel. I mean, much of what I walked through was just the, you know, the gospel in a little bit more long form. Uh, and so to that end, a rejection of, of Jesus dying as a substitute, you know, that he would actually take on sin and absorb the wrath of God, and rejecting that really is rejecting the cross. Um, because then you're saying, I want Jesus as a teacher, not as a savior. And that is not how, how Jesus comes in the gospel. That's, that's not who he presents himself to be. And so in doing that, we, re, we would... The, a person would be rejecting you know, the heart of the gospel, the cross. Um, so to that end, but as far as like signing off on a, on a doctrinal you know, list or something like that, no, I mean, it, it's the blood of Jesus only. That's our only appeal. It's not, but I did really good with you know, doctrine. No, it, it's, it's Christ alone. But uh, you know, particular to like the universalist perspective and things like that, typically... That universalist perspective, what comes along with it, is a rejection of, maybe not outright, but implicitly a rejection of much of the scriptures and who Jesus claims to be and what he came to do. And, and in doing that, in rejecting the scriptures, you can, you can quite easily be rejecting the gospel and, and, and really a faith in Christ as uh, a redeemer. And, and so that, that's what I would say. Uh, Yeah, so the question that um, wouldn't one of the other views, maybe the, um, the universalist view or the Arminian view um, of a wider extent of the opportunity of the gospel or the wider application for the universalist perspective, wouldn't that bring more glory to God? Uh, to that, um, one, I would say that, that brings with it, typically that question would have the connotation that it's a really small remnant and not the countless multitude that God has. I mean, it, everyone who believes in the name of Christ, everyone who looks to Christ for salvation, who, who calls upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. And not just those that have the same doctrinal agreements. Like, not just those that go to the same ex-church, you know? Like, it's, it's those who, who trust and believe in the gospel and look to Christ and follow him in trust and obedience. I mean, that is the, that is the promise of the gospel. Um, so I, I wouldn't make it so particular to just think that it's like, you know, 30 people that live in Arizona, you know. Or like, so, um, 
And then beyond that, it's also the, the glory of God and the success of evangelism. The glory of God in it, the, the message of the gospel going out and accomplishing what God has ordained it to do. Um, that God is sending out through his spirit the word of hope and, and the good news and that um, those who are called will respond in faith and that is glorious to Christ. It is glorious to the triune God. It's glorious to the effective cross, you know, the cross that, that secures that and does that and accomplishes what God before the foundation of the earth set out to do and that he would say, I have, I have not lost one. Um, and, and they're not all great or perfect or uh, even friendly, um, you know, but, but it, is, it is the work of Christ in, in the lives of these um, believers throughout time and in and, and space. Um, the only thing I would add to that is you, you said the center of the cross is just to display that God loves sinners. It also displays God hates sin, and you have to add that as well. It, it's, it's displaying both of those things. He does love sinners, and he hates sin, and therefore, how can he also display that attribute? Um, and that will, will be in the, the judgment of some. So. All right, we probably have time for one more question. I will answer first by saying this. Oh, yeah. Um, putting, putting myself back in a, in a point where I didn't necessarily ag agree with or see this view of the atonement, putting myself back there, the question of uh, why, why do I think that? or yeah, specifically, oh, specifically why? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I do this a lot with questions. First, uh, first I would say that I, we, we have to be careful about anything that we believe now, no matter what it is. Even if it's like, I, I really uh, hate the band Creed, you know, like, because you're going to look back at, at you who really liked Creed in my own prison, and you're going you're gonna to just chastise him for his terrible taste in music. Uh, but there are a couple good songs on that record. Um, but uh, you... And, and so I don't want to do that because, because that Jeff, who had a terrible haircut, uh, that Jeff believed in Jesus and loved him and knew him and hoped in him. And so I can't, I mean, I, mean, I, I have to first recognize that. Now, a couple of things, and not to, not to get superior in any way, um, which is a, a real risk when, when we talk about these things, is that I did, uh, but, but just as fact, I did not read my Bible, okay? Uh, there are occasions, but I, didn't, I really didn't spend time in God's Word. Uh, and I, I didn't really think about these things. Um, and as soon as I started reading my Bible, it's not like it just 
I was like, oh, I've now achieved a superior view of the Bible. No. It was through a lot of conversations and a lot of, a lot of heated conversations of disagreements. Um, and so it's not something that, it, um, that I was just like, oh, this seems like a superior view because I don't. And there's still vast, vast things that I struggle with greatly in this particular view. And again, this is a, this is a view. This is a vantage point. Um, you know, th- th- this is still striving to understand the mystery of God in the atonement. So this isn't by any stretch the, the thing that you just put in your pocket and, and, and now you're a card-carrying Calvinist or anything. Because there's so many things about Calvin, having read the Institutes and, and other things, that I don't agree with. So I don't just sign up for something like that. I, I strive to, to seek the Lord through his word and his spirit. And, um, and, and I appreciate the work of many godly men, but I... I Definitely don't sign myself up for their day camp or anything. So, um, for me, I grew up definitely very, very Arminian, free will, my choice, and um, also kind of armed to the teeth with scripture that I thought had supported that. Um, and ready to fight anybody. I, I was one of those obnoxious Arminians um, who, who just loved to fight. And, and I, I can remember very vividly with me, um, somebody just didn't argue with me and said, just read your Bible. And it infuriated me. I was like, of course I'm reading my Bible. I've got 50 scriptures I am ready to quote against you. And he's like, just read your Bible. And I just kept reading and and God just broke this down. And this is a person who before, me and another guy, we actually handed him a Bible that only had Romans 9 through 11 in it and said, since this is all you read, here it is. You know, um, thinking that the sovereignty of God was limited to those three chapters. And uh, just realizing how, how wrong I was seeing it. And, and a lot of the objections I had towards Calvinism Really, if I were to look in the mirror, I didn't have answers for those. You know, I, I realized I was struggling with the same things of atonement as they would be struggling with. And uh, anyway, it's just scripture after scripture just, just broke me down. And I, I became, I hate to use the word Calvinist, but a very reluctant one. Very reluctantly. And even praying, God, I despise this doctrine. I remember that. I despise it. I hate it. But it's in your word. And it's amazing. It became an absolute joy and lit a fire in me when I believed that. My evangelism exploded. My, my worship exploded in those things. Which is interesting because people are like, evangelism exploded when we believe in the sovereignty of God and predestination? Absolutely. Um, and I think you, you know, I can make a great scriptural argument for that as well. But for me, that was, that was the case. I, I wanted to fight everybody else. Um, so. All right. Um, well, we're going to close. But that doesn't mean that the questions have to end. And, and also, um, and I think I made this comment when I taught on inerrancy last year. We do this in a church setting because we're a community. All right? And, and we do this because conversations don't just happen in, in this context, right? We, we, we strive to live together and to live out the gospel together. And we strive to understand and worship the Lord together, 
All right? And so, so this isn't just, uh, these aren't talking points, right? I mean, this is us striving, trying to be like those Bereans, to, to search the scriptures and to see what's true and to encourage each other along the way. And so um, we want to continue these conversations. We want to encourage one another in the, in the word um, and, and listening to the spirit. And um, you can do these kinds of things as talking points, hot debates, and just scream at one another. But, but we're a community, and we're, we're a believing community, and we are uh, looking out for the best for one another. Um, and so uh, how, about, uh, how about I pray, and then uh, we can start getting chairs together and stuff like that. Hear these words from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Lord, we look to Christ. We look to what you have accomplished and what you have applied to your people. And we thank you that we can say that because you have loved the world so greatly, you sent your son to die that we might have life. And whosoever, whosoever, whosoever believes the beautiful gift of faith that you purchased on the cross, that we would not go down that road to perdition, but we would have eternal life in you. And so with humility, we delight in that. And with grace, we love one another striving to know you and to obey you. We pray these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody.